Welcome to this episode of the 9420 Podcast, where we talk about the music that we love and the industry that we tolerate. Welcome to this episode of the 9420 Podcast. That was Paul Lauren's single, All By Myself. Hi, Carl and Greg. How are you guys doing tonight? Hello. <laughs> Hello. See, I, I just, I don't know we're going to be able to get through this episode. Why not? Because I haven't pre-approved these uh, weird little sound bits that you're playing inside the podcast. It's what part make, of the fun of this podcast. Yeah, you never know what sound I effects are. And, and then yesterday, or or then then the last episode, I made a comment about it, and it was was miraculously mo- removed from the podcast. 
Carl's to, allowed to take artistic liberties when it comes to editing this. Just to us, I found out that one of them even has a name now. I, I feel well, as it was, if it, it was a cute little thing, and then I just added a name to it. it, it since it's baby Carla, playing, it, it's I baby, baby Carla. I hate baby Carla. Well, I love baby Carla, but she's not here tonight. She's sleeping. So, and you got we, we got the fire guy. He's not here tonight either. Yeah. I hate the fire guy. I hate baby Carla. I hate this new guy that's like, hello, hello. guy. I hate the hello, hello. guy. I but hate you, that guy. But, <laughs> but you know who you don't hate? Paul Lauren. I don't. I love Paul Lauren. <laughs> uh, I, uh, Paul Lauren is new to me. Um, and I just absolutely. That was cool, man. Like, you know, and, I and, really and, dig this. It yeah, sounds like seventies or late sixties, you know, Sam Cooke kind of stuff, right? In the well, in the earlier episodes, I brought up uh, an artist that does this kind of work, um, Pokey Lafarge. Well, I feel like Paul Lauren's the new Pokey Lafarge. I think that. Um, well, he's, so, he's gone way past Pokey Lafarge in my book because he he's, he's been featured those. on the podcast. Right. <laughs> I think it's it's very very cool. Uh, I think it's uh, it requires a ton of talent to be able to recreate these tracks and the moods and particularly the writing style, which is a, kind of a simpler from a simpler time. You know, when you're recording these tracks, I mean, you have to record the right instruments and the players have to approach their instruments in a way in which is you know it's like kind of a throwback. Uh, the drum sounds in particular are very, very uh, retro. So I think you're making conscious decisions. But I, I just think he's got great chops, and it seems like he Or can, is it possible yeah. that Paul, like, was, you know, fell into a deep coma in 1957 <laughs> and just woke up last year, and that's all he knows? You he's never been reanimated. Know. reanimated. Did you ever well, see that? Um, yeah. Did you ever see that? Um, what was his name? Uh, Mike, what's his name? Mike that's Myers. The Austin, that's the Austin, Austin Powers, Powers thing. Yeah. When he gets a oh, CD, Mike Myers. Mike Myers, right. and he puts a CD on top of a record player. He puts the needle yeah, in the CD. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> what's this? <laughs> and she's like that. Well, what I'm excited about for this episode, too, is we're kind of doing a first of sorts with Paul. We have been given the A-OK to actually premiere his new single that's coming out on April 30th. And we'll be playing that at the end of the episode. I like how this guy just is kind of true to, like, he writes what he wants to write. And he, you know, the sound is kind of retro-y, but he's not necessarily sticking to just one variety. I, I like the new single as well. Uh, very Johnny Rivers kind of. Um, it's got that syncopated drum feel, that, like Ronnie Tut, who played in Elvis's band for yeah, years. It sounds like and, an, it's an Elvis really track cool. Very from cool. like the the seventies, the late the yeah. early seventies. Yeah. yeah, it's very cool. Um, I, I I just think this guy's really special. I think um, it's the kind of work that I think the producers of shows like. The marvelous Mrs. Ms. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, those kinds of show runners, those kinds of music supervisors need to know, and maybe they do, but I think they need to know what he's about because right, because uh, all these shows that are circa the fifties or sixties, yeah, the period authentic, pieces, authentic yeah, I mean, licenses, right? And and they and these license, uh, rather these songs are are written, they're legit, you know, they they sound. As if they were written. But the problem with that is a, a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong, but a lot of those guys from the '60s and '50s, 
they'd probably let their stuff be licensed for a nickel. Sometimes people call those orphaned works when they have been recorded and, you know, the kind of the music publishers are out of business and people, you know, they don't even know who to go to to get the license because they don't know who owns the master uh, and they don't know who publishes the work. But uh, this (laughs) I just thought of a new rule. I think, forget licensing. I think everyone should just use whatever they want and just wait to be sued. That's all. Don't <laughs> well, even I think me. Greg just fell over in his don't chair. Even, don't no, even bother licensing. It, you know, just, it, like, everyone use whatever you want and just wait to be sued. It's kind, sued. Of what's, it's kind of what's been happening. You know, the old adage, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Since the advent of digital, People have basically used what they want to use and they worry about the repercussions later. It's just part of the devaluing of music once uh, people were no longer afraid to make a copy of the copy. Everyone listening, that was being ridiculous, by the way. But a friend of mine went to this film festival, a Long Island film festival, all these new Long Island filmmakers, right? And this guy shows one of his movies, right? And you know, these Beatles and Pink Floyd songs in there. And the guy who's like, you know, trying to like help these guys, he goes, so what are you doing with this music? Did you get the license? He goes, no. Are you supposed to get licenses? He goes, yeah. You can't just have all this like classic music play out throughout your movie. And you had no clue. How do these guys even have a clue what they're supposed yeah. to do, you know? Well, people, I mean, you know, and ignorance is uh, ignorance not bliss. Is- it's not bliss when it comes to copyright infringement, but you know, the whole thing is just kind of uh, infuriating because quite frankly, I mean, the difficulty that we've had associated with getting permissions or getting the correct license in order to use the music in the podcast, that's for people. We, we've had difficulty on occasion from people that should know better, you know, people that are in the publishing game, people that have owned masters and continue to own masters. They ought to be able to give you the opportunity to exploit their work in the good sense of the word and allow us to help it be discovered in some way. So, you know, don't get me started, right? Okay. There's baby baby Carla. Carla. She woke up from her nap. I am. I'm telling you something. I'm quitting this podcast. If baby Carla shows up many more episodes. But um, you want to play another song by Paul? Yeah, let's yeah. play uh, I Know a Place. And again, what I like about his titles, they're both like titles of, because you can't copyright a title. So they're both titles of old classic songs. Like All By Myself is a great song by Eric Carmen. Yeah. You know, so, so I don't know if that can hurt him or help him. You know, it's uh, kind of a, a mixed, Either or, because like people go oh, all by myself, you know, then they play it. Oh, you know, so or I know a place was a great song by uh, Petula Clark back in the day. Uh oh, back in the day. <laughs> so um, let's hear it, and you know, and we'll come on the flip side. I know a place by Paul Lauren. Somewhere we can go A place where our hearts are 
I know a place. What I like about that song is the first time I heard it, it took me back to the movie The Notebook with Rachel McAdams and uh, Ryan Gosling, whatever, maybe right. not Ryan Gosling. Um, yeah, Ryan Gosling. But it's the scene where they're in the laying in the middle of the street, they get up and they start dancing and the music comes in and immediately like it just reminds me of that. And like that could have been the song that was playing at that time, but it obviously wasn't. So it's interesting that like songs like that can bring you back to certain things. You know, the video for this song is actually, um, I would encourage everybody to go out and check it out. The video is, uh, they're actually using archival footage about uh, like social change. And I just think that the it, it's a great, simple almost gospel-tinged, popular song. His voice uh, is really soulful. And, His voice is very soulful. Yeah, and I, it, 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 uh, I think it's just very aspirational, you know? It's very cool, very cool. 
Well, since we played a couple of his tunes, we we asked him a couple of questions, didn't we? We did. We we asked him four questions this week. Oh, wait, wait, sorry. Four questions of the week. Let's get it down. We've only been doing this for a year. <laughs> I know, I know. So the first question that we asked him was, what inspired you to write No Room for Yesterday? Which No Room for Yesterday is the single that we're premiering at the end of this episode. So I'm kind of interested to hear his answer to that. Okay, let's hear it. So it was early spring of 2020, and I was a holdup down in Nashville, which I know is familiar to you. Uh, And I had brought a guitar with me down in Nashville, listening to a lot of early Elvis records at the time, the Sun Studio stuff with all that great tape slap back on it. I picked up this guitar, and I'm noodling around on chords. You know, and early rock and roll stuff, it's swung, it's shuffled, it's... It's never straight. You know, there was, there's a role in the rock back then before rock and roll straightened out, everyone was swinging. So I've just started swinging on some chord changes and um, the song came pretty quickly. Um, And certainly we all remember what was going on in early spring of 2020. Um, The bleakness of the situation, the uncertainty of everything And me, you know, enjoying some of the finer things in life along the lines of food and drink. Uh, I was worried, hey, am I going to be able to raise a glass of wine (laughs) and enjoy myself during this time? Not that I could afford all the finer things, but that's what the song's about. Can we still find the spirit to celebrate and declare our humanity during a very dark and bleak era? That is No Room for Yesterday. You know, you're right, Greg. It's exactly, you know, he even said it. He listened to old Elvis tunes and he kind of modeled it after that. Yeah, you you mentioned the Elvis. I, I think I actually had a different drummer reference. I mean, I I heard Ronnie Tut. The Elvis tracks he's talking about are like the like the kind of late 50s tracks, which that, that drummer's DJ Fontana. Well, that, that's what I heard. So like, yeah. he did what he set out to because that, you know, that's the first thing I thought of. And that's what he said yeah. it was. So what else do we ask him? Uh, we asked him to describe the process behind making the new record. Okay. Let's see what Paul has to say. So I come back to New York from Nashville, have a few songs in tow. And I kind of set about um, unknowingly writing the full record. Um, it, I ended up writing maybe 20 something songs in five or six weeks making it kind of a daily habit Um, just for me, not knowing it would be a record, Um, just putting down voice memos and sending to some close friends and collaborators. And in the summer, in July, when it looked like um, things were able to open up safely in New York City, uh, I went into the studio with Zach Jones on drums and Oscar Albus Rodriguez on bass and guitar. And uh, we arranged all those voice memos uh, as recordings. We tracked live to tape. Um, I had used my old mixing console, an MCI console from the 1970s, a lot of analog recording equipment. And the record, the basis of the record has this live feel. And we really got through 22-ish songs. The record was overdubbed uh, little by little through the fall and mixed fully by the end of 2020. And the first 11 songs are coming out this fall, followed by the next 11 songs sometime next year. So he's got two years in the can. So well, good prolific, for him. Prolific. 
And did you notice the shout out to the players? How cool! I, I like this guy already. I, I like that he like you know. I like that he yeah, he names his players. He names his people. He talks about like he he recorded this old school. Like I I guarantee you, it sounded like he recorded the tape. So where'd we find um, Paul, Nicole? So he is a Lakeside management client, um, and his manager, Carrie, actually submitted his music to us to be considered for the podcast. So he actually found us, which is very exciting. We've done another artist of hers, haven't we? We did. Um, It was two episodes ago, I believe. Harise is one of the others. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool. And and they're they're in New York. They are in New York. Yep. Wow. So what else did we ask him? Did we ask him anything else? We did. We asked him, what's so special about recording to tape? Oh, duh. There you go. (laughs) I like this guy. Let's go. There is something to be said for limitations in making art and music. Uh, Nowadays, with digital recording technology, we have no limits. You can do anything. And that seems to um, not be able to narrow down focus. I mean, at least for me. I love recording to tape because you are limited. You only have eight tracks that you can record to. Um, And not only that, but it allows you um, to build up a certain type of resistance to the platform itself and maybe uh, go beyond the limitations of the medium. And that seems to happen when I record to tape. I find new and creative ways just within the process to kind of break the limitations. Also tape, I mean, much like an analog photograph, like a, like a Polaroid or, uh, you know, in, in just an old photograph, it captures all the information in a way, but kind of smooths it out in this beautiful haze. You don't see the fine detail with digital photography or digital music making. You kind of see everything. And, uh, I don't need the music to be HD. Uh, There's something about that haze over the the final work that makes it really beautiful and dreamy and kind of adds something. And that is uh, recording to tape. I think what he's talking about, and I agree, there's this inherent, they talk about it, there's this inherent distortion, you know, with, with magnetic tape that happens when you record that, like, you know, like when you put a 57, an SM57 microphone up into a, a Marshall amp and play lead guitar, that's the only way to, to record a guitar, you know, because with digital recordings, you, you, you miss all the nuance, the nuance of the air in the room and stuff. That's what tape does. And also... Maybe it's magical. Maybe I'm just being crazy. But last year, I, I, I took a trip when I was up in Detroit. I, I visited the Motown Museum where they recorded all the old Motown stuff. There was like a small little room that studio, right? It was all like four track, actually. And they just had everything was like in one room and the mics. And for some reason, that stuff still today resonates. There's a magic that the tape captured that I don't think you captured digitally. It's like kind of like same thing with TV, right? Like film. We talked about last week about how film has this kind of sheen to it, where digital film it's just too stark and something gets lost, or I don't know. No, I I, I totally agree with what he had to say. I think that um, you know it's 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 special that when you create music and when we listen to music, I mean the basis of it is that we're moving air, pushing air, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so. It makes sense that the more analog you are and the more physical you are at moving that air and recreating that, uh, it makes sense that you can capture some stuff that a uh, sameness to the reaction that you're going to get. 
uh, as opposed to stuff that's generated electronically, digitally. It never really pushes any air until it's translated into a speaker. Or the vocals. But the only th- only thing that are, that are kind of analog in those songs, you know. And right. even those things are so, these days are so processed. Because even though, like, you know, you can hear a lot of these um, auto-tunes, you know, used as a, as, a, as, a, as a tool, you know, like as, a, as an effect. But I can hear a lot of times where they just use it as to try to neaten up someone's vocal because they're not singing in key. And to me, that, it, it ruins it because it kind of gives it a kind of false, like, uh, there's something that's just... There's something that's it, just not quite right. Right. I, maybe I'm wrong, you know, and these records are great and some of them are cool, but none of those records back in, you know, uh, here we go. None of those records back, back in the day, there was no auto-tune, man. Those guys, like you, you listen to like Queen, perfect example. Listen to that, 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 those like you know, the Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody harmonies, they sang that stuff. Mm. You know, da, 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 you know, those guys went in the room and over and over and, and you know, and they and they blended and they sang it and there was no auto tune and they just because they were just doing it for real. So yeah, that's that's something that should not be discounted on um, uh, listening to Paul's work. Uh, he's a really really good singer. Uh, oh, definitely, know, I, mean, I love his. Voice. I think I think back in the day, people. Uh, I think that uh, people that became well known, people that built big careers, people that became um, celebrities, if you will. Right. I think most of them had perfect pitch because you needed the consistency and you couldn't rely upon technology. Did you ever watch old newsreel footage of uh, people performing live on television? Right. They're singing into an RE15 mic, which we used to call them the doorstop at the <laughs> studio. Right there, exactly. You know, I mean, and these people sound amazing and they're singing into this very, well, very limited mic. I just heard something today, actually. I was just scrolling through TikTok and I saw this TikTok of Steve Winwood, maybe within the last couple of years or what, he's in his 60s or early 70s, singing an old traffic tune, Can't Find My Way Back Home on the acoustic guitar. So here's this guy in his late 60s playing the guitar, singing this, and it was pitch perfect. He was live. You could tell he sang like that. Stevie Winwood's voice was that to his voice. Yep. He, you know, he wasn't auto tuned. You know, hit those high notes, those low notes. He, you know, so yeah, guys were great back then. You know, not that they're not now, but you know, but there I think, are so I, many ways now to almost force that so that people don't have to have perfect. Well, they can pitch. get lazy. Yeah. When they used to remake records, when it was like, what do you see about having eight tracks? When you have so many. Unlimited tracks, unlimited plugins, unlimited sound effects. You get lost in your ability to choose. So you just, where when you only have eight tracks or four tracks when they recorded Pepper and, and they didn't have flangers and 80 plugins, you have to actually, you know, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. You figured stuff out. You were creative. You were nowadays. People just, I think they can get lazy and just put a lot of cool sounds and just scroll through programs. Oh, how about this one? You know, when they didn't have as much, they had to work harder to make it cool. So there's something to be said for that, I think. Absolutely. Um, do you want to get to Paul's last question? Did we ask Paul one last question? We did. Baby Carla, do you want to hear Paul's last question? Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, all right. So we asked Paul, what new music do you love? I think new music is a funny term because there is so much music that we miss that, you know, growing up wouldn't have been on our radar or before we were even born. 
And when you discover it or rediscover it, it is new music. I mean, there's a ton of kind of country and I don't, I want to call it maybe alt country from the seventies stuff that I kind of knew tangentially, but just got reacquainted with and dug in deep on over the last few years. Uh, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt stuff and certainly John Prine, those records. I mean, obviously he passed away last year and we all went on a great John Prine kick, but Emmylou Harris and just a lot of 70s stuff, uh, 60s and 70s country stuff that I didn't really know deep uh, and, and well enough. As far as contemporary music, I don't, uh, I don't listen to top 40, admittedly. <laughs> I don't listen to the pop charts, but I, I love kind of what's happening in the, the, I don't know, alt Americana scene. I dig um, the songwriter scene, and I love Brandy Carlisle, and I, I love a lot of the Sturgill Simpson stuff, and I think he's just super exciting because he tries something new on every record. Really dig that. Margot Price. Um, there's a bunch of new stuff that I really respond to. I like how he, I think he expressed it well, the idea that, you know, if it if if it's new to you, it's new. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I love that. I mean, that, that's how I listen, actually. I, I think that, uh, you know, something doesn't have to be released in 2021 in order for me to feel as if I'm on top of things. If I rediscover an album that I never heard that was made in 1966, I'm good. Or 1990 or, you know, 2004. It doesn't matter to me when it was made. I just want to hear it. Well, if you respond to it, if it's something that you hear for the first time, no matter when you hear it, and, and right. you know you respond to it, yeah, I, I agree. You know, so it's just music is music. It's it is kind of timeless. You guys ready to premiere his new single, "No Room for Yesterday"? Okay, we talked about you know his new song, so let's uh, yeah, let's hear his new song. Tell me. 
front porch If the neighbors are dismayed I'll put down my spoon and pray Let's hope tomorrow has no room for yesterday When the party's over Let's pour one more round Come the morning We'll be six feet underground If our welcome's overstayed We will soon be on our way You know what? You know what's funny? Fun stuff. Again, I, I hear Elvis like Elvis. Like I hear him like opening up for Elvis at at Caesars in like seventy one. You know, right? And the thing I like is CC Rider time. Right, right, exactly. And then and the line, you know, I told tomorrow there's no room for yesterday. It almost sounds like it's it's an old cliche. I like this guy a lot. I think he's very cool. I think we need to have him back on, and I think we need to unpack this like kind of Nashville. New York connection thing that may be going on because, uh, you know, we've had that going on for a while, right? Well, Nashville is still, whatever you want to say, is still the songwriter hub for, you know, your singer songwriter. You don't go to LA to be a singer songwriter. You go to Nashville. And I hate to say, it, I'm from New York. Yeah. There is no, you know, even when I was doing it here, there really wasn't a cool vibe in New York. I think New York stopped being a kind of cool place to break out after 79. New York stopped after punk. You know, there was the 60s when it was folk, and then in the 70s there was punk. But then other than that, there's no vibe out of New York. I can remember the new music seminars in New York City and Manhattan in the in the 80s. Right. And, you know, there was still kind of the CBGB's thing going brownies and, you know, these clubs that you felt as if there was a movement there. But there wasn't. Uh, but then, I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, rap as an influence – started to infiltrate the new music scene, new music seminar uh, around uh, the late 80s to early 90s. And I think a lot of the scene kind of went away because, I mean, rap and hip hop just became the predominant influence in New York at that time. Because right. yeah, there was a, a pseudo scene, late '90s, early 2000s, like Arlen's Grocery. There was, even though there's a place down in Nashville, there's a place here called the Living Room. There was a few places, like you know, that almost had a vibe going on. Singer songwriter, alternative acoustic kind of thing. Sinead, where I played and stuff, but it never really kind of took off. So Nashville's still the place to go, I think. Nashville still had a I mean a very, very solid reputation for singer, songwriter, and songwriter, commercial songwriter in general, for at least for country in the eighties and nineties. We did have a little bit of a rock scene here, but the country influence was so prevalent. There were some rock and roll clubs that people favored. But Really and truly, I mean, it really was kind of focused on the singer-songwriter for 20, 30 years. Well, I will say we will probably have him back in the fall when he releases his new record with all part new... Two, part two. Right? No, th- this is part one. His new record... Oh, yeah, well, yeah, right. yeah, part two comes out in 2022. But we'll have him on and we'll, we'll kind of get to the answer of the Nashville-New York connection. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the 9420 Podcast. For everything that we've talked about throughout this show, you can go to our website, which is 9420.com. That is the numbers, the 94, and the letters T-W-E-N-T-Y. Until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye. 